You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 76 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Every three months, CLASS publishes a new benchmark report showing trends in the industry and focusing on a particular issue. The June 2018 report looked at the effects of the super reforms so far, among other topics. Here's Kevin Bunger, the CEO of CLASS, with more details. The way we approach it is that each quarter we want to provide data about some of the core uh, metrics about what's going on in terms of the um, uh, things like the balances and the, where the assets are allocated and so forth. So there's a, a large portion of the report that is the same um, from quarter to quarter in terms of the structure and the content, and that's so that you can compare it over time and see if it's varying and um, uh, use it as that kind of benchmark of, of what's going on in the industry. Uh, then what we do, though, is we look at what's going on in the industry. We think about what's topical. We think about what people will be interested in. And we pick one of those as the feature article where we go, OK, let's dive down on this data a bit more in a particular area um, based on what we think might be of interest to to people given what's going on in the industry and given maybe press coverage around particular topics or trends and so forth and see if we can put some data behind that because generally that's what we're about is about doing the data analysis rather than just going, oh, we think that people are doing this or people say they're doing this. It's like, can we look at the data and actually see what's happening? Obviously, in this case, zipper reform has been the big topic for the last sort of uh, couple of years since the 2016 budget and... We thought, well, we're getting close to the end of that now. Obviously, the, the, the goal was to uh, change what was going on with self-managed super funds, particularly the, the asset allocation that was in pensions where they were in that tax-free phase. We thought, well, let's have a look at that. How much how much money actually moved? And? Uh, and so, so <laughs> a, a lot. <laughs> um, so over $200 billion had basically moved out of pension phase into the taxable accumulation That's portion of did the market. You, did you expect it to be that high? No, we, we hadn't actually. Billion. Yes, yes. So we hadn't really been thinking about, I guess, like the rest of the industry, uh, very busy actually getting on with doing the work, uh, working with our administrators to, to make sure we could implement the changes as required. And obviously the administrators were busy talking to the trustees and making sure they could do everything. And not a lot of thought about, gee, what's this going to mean in terms of the amount of money or how it all adds up and what does it mean in terms of tax as the outcome? Obviously the motivation of the government in doing this was to generate more tax. So um, the fact that it's generating about a billion dollars more in tax in the, the sort of first financial year that it comes into effect is obviously what the, the government was aiming to do. And based on the Treasury estimates that were actually part of the budget, uh, they're pretty much on track with where those estimates oh, were. So they expected the uh, billion. Yeah, they had basically estimated that there would be two and a half billion over the first three years. And the first year, I think they had estimated just over 900, uh, 900 million. 
and pretty much they, they look pretty much to be spot on. Now, in terms of additional tax for this year, when you look at it, there's also another half a billion. So there's one and a half billion in total additional tax, but that's from organic growth. So about a billion of that relates to those assets that have been moved. So those 222 billion dollars have moved and then the earnings on those are the things that are generating the tax and that's added about a billion dollars to the tax take from the self-managed super funds. 200 billion moved yes. from pension to accumulation. That's the yes. know, huge, yes. huge number. Yes. But I'm surprised that it only resulted in one billion dollars of more tax when mm -hmm. you take 200 billion dollars moving mm -hmm. from tax-free yes. to 15 percent tax but i guess it's only the earnings on the earnings it's so only on the you, earnings yes so if you, so assume if you we assume a five percent return yes five percent return on 200 billion that's 10 billion yes and then 15 percent of that yes yeah you're close yeah. it would be a little bit more than a billion it's it's more yeah it's more complicated than that because you've got to keep in mind as well that some of the money is then potentially being drawn out at some point so it might get moved initially and then it might so whether or not you actually see earnings on that is another issue the other problem is that you're only paying tax on the realized gains so if you if you're unrealized gains you won't be paying tax on those so it's not quite that simple yeah. so you, you, you and again, that's a, an estimate based on not taking into account franking credits and other factors and expense claims and those sort of things. So, but the point is, if you're in gross terms creating a tax liability that's a billion dollars more and assuming that there wasn't a lot of change in the franking credits and expenses and so forth, then that's going to result in, at the bottom line, an extra billion dollars in tax. When you look at the $200 billion that had moved, you know, what, what caused it to move? And then the two big changes were one was the TRIS, the Transition to Retirement Income Streams, Transition to Retirement Pensions, were no longer being treated as uh, tax-free. In terms of the tax implications, about 0.2 of a billion, about $200 million actually came from those moving across. Uh, the bigger portion, though, relates to the $1.6 million cap. So most of the money moved was related to taking money that was over the $1.6 million for those members and moving it back into accumulation fund. Now, people could have taken some of that money out as well, but in terms of what remained in the system that's been moved into accumulation, uh, it's, it kind of makes up that $200 billion. What that means is funds that used to be entirely in pension phase have reduced dramatically. We're down to the point where only 14% of the assets are in funds that are in pure pension phase now, and that's down basically half. So uh, it used to be 31% were actually in that pure pension phase. What that does mean for those funds as well is that they're now in a situation where they'll need actuarial certificates. So give and take here in terms that's of... That's a very good point. The actuaries will do really well out of this. Well, some give and take here. So funds that used to have transitioned retirement pensions where they would have been in a mixed mode and had an actuary, so they may now be fully in uh, accumulation phase. So when you look at where the shifts went, you've seen an increase in funds that were in uh, purely in accumulation phase. So that's gone up um, from 24% to 29%. Those funds obviously purely in accumulation phase, they don't need an actuarial certificate. So between the give and take, 
the funds that need actuarial certificates will have gone up, but it, it's not as clear cut as or, you know that fourteen percent or sixteen uh, percent of pension funds that it's, it's not going to go up by sixteen percent. We think it's about a ten percent increase. In your benchmark report, you mentioned that the gender gap is closing. Slowly, but it is closing. Yeah, I think it was an interesting uh, unintended side effect. Um, one of the things that, uh, as a strategy, that um, advisors will be talking to their clients about um, is that if you have, uh, you know, an average two-member fund and one of the members has a higher balance than the others, which is quite common, that it makes sense to try and even those up. And two of the really common strategies there are if you were taking money out of patient uh, uh, out of one uh, account and if you were able to contribute it back uh, for the other members, so withdraw the money from the member with the high balance, um, contribute it in using bring forward non-concessional uh, for the other member, assuming that their balance is not too high and that you can do that, uh, then you can kind of move you know, $300,000 across from one member to the other. The other thing that you can do is contribution splitting. And so uh, we, we're seeing an increase in uh, the number of funds that are using contribution splitting where the contributions that would have been from the earnings um, from, from an S uh, superannuation guarantee contributions for a high balance member are actually being switched across to the low balance member. Um, and we think both of those are strategies you'll see ongoing um, and you'll continue to kind of see those balances um, even up. What that meant is that you, we've seen a, a jump in the female balances and that uh, that's kind of starting to even up. So for the first time, the female balances were more than 80% of, of the male balances. So that gender inequity in uh, superannuation, certainly where there are couples that are sort of sharing the balances, is gonna, it looks like it's going to even up more over time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my thinking at the moment is that when you have a two-member fund, the gender gap doesn't really matter. Whether the husband or the wife has a higher balance, it doesn't really matter. Usually it's a reversionary pension anyway. I think the gender gap matters a lot more for single women with very low super balances. That's where it really is a problem. Look, I think that's, a, that, that, that's true in terms of, obviously, at the end of the day, if you have a couple, um, even if they divorce, even if they have a breakup, what's going to happen is that superannuation is going to be evened up anyway, in most cases, in terms of as part of the, the settlement process, they will kind of divvy that up. So obviously, the reason you're seeing this action taken is not because people are basically saying that this is a... a more equitable uh, outcome in terms of having even balances. Like you say, it doesn't really matter from a from a couple's perspective, but obviously it does matter from a tax perspective in terms of not only tax, but also what you can do because there are a whole range of restrictions now, even as I think kicking out at sort of $500,000 where you can, you know, whether you can use the carry forward for your contributions, for example. And then obviously when you get to a million dollars, you've now got the T-bar reporting changes depending on your balance and the, you know, 1.4, 1.5, 1.6, each of these different levels, there are things you can and can't do. So there are reasons, and obviously the 1.6 one is the point where you can't have tax-free pension transfers at that point. So there is good reasons to level up your balances across uh, multiple members in the fund, across a couple. And so it makes sense to kind of do that tax planning perspective rather than, uh, and also, as I said, those other restrictions. You, you, you can do more if you have lower balances, even them up, uh, you'll, you'll give yourself more options. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, we did make a comment in the benchmark report about uh, given this big increase in tax that was being paid by self-managed super funds um, that we thought it might be worth commenting on the proposed policy from the Labor Party around reducing um, availability of uh, franking credits for, for self-managed super funds that are in a refund uh, phase. So, first of all, I guess the, the, the outcome of the super reforms is you now have self-managed super funds paying more anyway, so they'll be paying more tax and so that will reduce the benefit that the Labor Party might get from this particular policy. But more importantly, we think the policy is unfair because it penalises those investors, those superannuation members who've chosen to manage their own super. If they remain in a big bank super fund, if the largest retail fund is AMP super, if you put your money into into that, you will get your refund, you will get your franking credits, regardless whether you're in a pension phase or not. Because what happens is in a large fund, there are enough accumulation members, there are enough contributions coming in and contribution tax being paid that you will always be entitled to those franking credits. You take the same member, you move them into a self-managed super fund because they don't want to be with AMP or one of the big banks, and all of a sudden you're going to penalise them for making that decision. Um, we, we don't think that makes sense. We don't think it's good policy. Part of what we want to be able to do is have the administrators look at how do they compare to other businesses and understanding uh, the distribution of the size of uh, businesses that we are dealing with. The vast majority of the businesses that are using class are small accounting practices using sort of 25 to or looking after 25 to 250 self-managed super funds. So when you look at that in terms of the key statistics, you will see that the median size of a client, so you know, if you take a client and line them all up and pick the one in the middle, they'll have 58 funds that they're looking after. So that means over half of our client base is basically less than 60 funds that they're looking after. You, when you look at the average number of funds, you see that it's quite high. It's at 120. And what that is telling you is that big difference between the median and the average is telling you that obviously we have some large administrators who have thousands of funds and they're dragging that average up. Uh, if you actually look at further down in the in the report, we talk about the class customers and we show you them distributed by the, the number of uh, SMSFs that they look after. We only have 14 clients that have more than a 1,000 funds. Uh, but those 14 uh, clients would, in some cases, have up to uh, seven or 8,000 uh, self-managed super funds that they're looking after. Fifty-one percent of the funds. It's fifty-one percent of the correct, funds correct. are looked after yes. by practices who do zero to two hundred and fifty funds correct. each. Correct, that's right. Uh, in terms of the the number of funds that they're looking at, uh, looking after, as I said, most of our clients are suburban, rural accounting practices looking after the, the clients in, in their kind of area uh, and so they're in that kind of typical range of 25 to 250 funds. Yeah, in terms of the clients, you're actually, it's uh, 70% of our clients are actually less than 100 funds. So you get a lot of support centre calls? Uh, well, no, most of them are, are, are pretty good at what they do. So we'll get support calls when it's related to, uh, we get a 
lot of support calls last year because of super reform, and that was a lot for everybody to get on uh, to, to get through. And so it would be, you know, quite common to get people ringing up and saying, "Hey, I'm just doing my first CGT relief. Can you just step me through this process so I'm doing the process correctly?" Whereas most of the things that they're doing year in year out, starting pensions, doing commutation, dealing with contributions, and so forth, obviously they they know how to do all those things and they get up to speed with those pretty quickly. Another thing I thought was interesting is that the average number of members per fund is 1.9, which pretty much means that almost all your funds are two-member funds, with a few exceptions. Uh, 71% of funds have two members. You've got about just over 20% of funds that have a single member, and then you have very small percentage of funds that are actually using the three- and four-member options. And that's interesting in terms of the change in policy to allow you to have up to six members now. Given that we've only got uh, less than 4% of funds that have four members, we don't see the change to five or six members making a huge impact. Now, you may see that for a particular family, if they wanted everybody in, you know, maybe they hadn't included, you know, maybe some of those two-member funds, they would have only included the kids if they could include uh, three or four of them rather than, mm. you know, so it may, there may be some interesting effects there in terms of... Um, I can imagine. Yeah. Because if you can't include all your children... You can, might not, you're not allowed to pick a favourite. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was surprised that it's still 7.4% of your funds that have more than two members. I've never seen a fund with more than two members. We've seen a number of funds where you will have um, more than two members. Often what it will be is that there'll be funds that are segregated as well. There'll be ones where they're kind of doing kind of intergenerational estate planning and those sorts of things. Um, but so you're right the farm, there. When the farm is in the, in the SMSF. Yeah, that's a good example. But there will be, it's quite common for some of those multiple member funds to be ones where they're segregating as well. And so it's kind of very clear who's got which assets because obviously, as you mentioned earlier, when we're talking about couples, that really, you know, it doesn't matter who's got the assets. Whereas as soon as you start bringing in other members into the fund, even if they are your, your, your children, that it gets more complicated that in, 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 in terms of, well, hang on, who's making which investment strategies? Because obviously if you're talking about uh, parents who are in their 60s and then they've got their children here and there in their 40s, their investment strategies be quite different and, and rightly so. And so if you mix those in one fund, remembering that it's the strategy for the fund, unless you do do segregation, it, can, it, it won't necessarily get the right outcomes for the particular members. I think that's one of the reasons it's very common to have two member funds is to make sure that it's very clear about the um, ownership, very clear around what the investment strategy of the fund is. The more members you have, the harder it is to have the investment strategy of the fund be tailored to the members. And that's really one of the benefits of a self-managed super fund is um, you can tailor the investment strategy to the needs of those members. If you look at the key stats page... Um, you'll see there's only 1% of, of funds that actually have more than 10 million. And then, you know, you've essentially got just under 5% that have more than 5 million. It's for those funds that are in uh, mixed phase. So, oh, yes. uh, so that's, uh, if, if you think about it, that makes sense that that number would be quite high because remembering that a whole bunch of those mixed phase funds now are ones where they have more than 1.6 mil uh, and that's why they're now mixed because they've had to move money back into accumulation phase and also to be in the mixed phase you've got to at least have 
one member in there who has got a pension, which means that they will be an older member and therefore there's a strong correlation between age and balances. The, the, um, certainly uh, until you start getting to the point where they're in the 80s and 90s and been drawing money down for a number of years, certainly in that sort of 60, 70 range, you will be seeing large balances that people have built up over, over many years. Um, so those mixed phase funds, you will see a higher balance there on average compared to the industry kind of average of, of sort of more that sort of $1.3, $1.4 million. Part of the what we look at for the benchmark report is where assets are being invested. So each quarter we look at based on the ATO classification. So the typical investment industry view of asset classes is different to the ATOs. But when you look at the categories that the ATO uses and where assets are invested, listed shares are at 28%. That would include ETFs. We break that out separately elsewhere in the report where we say, well, what is in listed shares and ETFs are a portion of that. There's also some LI and other things that are in there. Unlisted trusts are about 18%. The unlisted trusts in the ATO categorization, a lot of that is managed funds. So where they are not an M fund that's listed, it will come through as an unlisted trust. If you've got a large enough balance, that may also just be a, a you know a, a wholesale offering as well. So if you're talking about a larger self-managed super fund where they can invest a, a million dollars or $2 million into a managed fund, they'll be getting direct access to uh, the ability to invest in those. I see. So then that would count as an unlisted trust. Correct. So if you've got a, a managed fund, if you were to buy into a, a Platinum or a Vanguard or some other managed fund, which might be a, a, an emerging markets fund or it might be an, an Asian market fund, something where it, it, your investment strategy is aligned with what that managed fund was doing. In a lot of cases, people hold managed funds through platforms, but you can buy those directly as well. In either case, they would show up here as an unlisted trust because they're not traded on the ASX. They're not traded in a, in a public market. You, you buy those managed funds direct from uh, the, the fund manager. I thought it was interesting that the SMSFs hold significantly more commercial property than residential property. Yep. So 9.6% in yes. commercial against 6.2% in residential. Yes. It's very common for self-managed super funds where they are investing in property for that to be a commercial property, and there are a couple of good reasons for that. Um, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned um, uh, where a farm or rural property is held within a self-managed super fund. That's quite common. The other one that's quite common is um, you can, within a self-managed super fund, own the premise that your business is operating from. So doctors, lawyers and others who might have a practice, accountants, can basically buy the property that they're working from. They can have that in the self-managed super fund as long as they're doing everything at appropriate arm's length rates, then you can hold that. So uh, unlike residential where you can't obviously buy a residential property and then live in it uh, if you're holding it in your self-managed super fund, you can actually operate your business out of a premise that was in your self-managed super fund. So the, the commercial properties in SMSFs would very often include in-house assets. Yeah, the, it's very common for that asset to be a, a shop or to be a, um, a, a, a dental practice or a medical practice or, as you say, an accountant's office um, that is being held in the self-managed super fund. When you compare the managed funds towards the exchange-traded funds, yes. in the managed funds, everyone basically appears once. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas in the exchange-traded funds, you have the same companies being mentioned again and again. You know, iShare has six funds among the top 20 exchange-traded funds. Vanguard has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Do you see where I'm going? Yeah, yeah, when yeah. you go to managed yes. funds, everybody seems to appear once. Yeah, I think what you'll see in the differences between managed funds and ETFs is when you're looking at managed funds, what you will be doing is you'll be looking at the investment credentials of that fund manager. You'll be looking at a particular uh, investment philosophy or investment strategy that they are employing and you'll buy into that particular managed fund on the basis of that particular fund manager's uh, credentials and, and approach. ETFs are a little bit different. With ETFs, you're really looking at a typically single-focused or particularly looking at indexes and looking at asset classes. Um, and the ETFs are more about, you know, it's not quite that simple, but you could argue, for example, that an ETF that is an index product that is tracking the ASX 200 or is tracking NASDAQ or, or some other exchange, uh, that it really doesn't matter which one you go to. The main driver is how cheaply can I get it? How can I get exposure to the ASX 200? Or if it's a, a ETF product that's giving me exposure to um, a, a different asset class like bonds or fixed interest, again, it will be about, well, I, I, I'm not really too worried about, you know, what they're doing in, in the detail. I'm worried about how cheaply I can get that. So I think what you'll see with ETFs is that um, you will see that people will go, well, Vanguard is very cheap. They've got a range of ETFs. Uh, the other providers will have a range of ETFs. They, you know, on a superficial level, they all look the same to me. I'll go with the one that's at the at the cheapest rate. So I think you're seeing a different dynamic around how people choose an ETF. It's often just a commodity decision, how which one is cheaper. Whereas with managed funds, you are much more you're prepared to pay for a particular fund manager because you believe in their investment philosophy, and you will pick the product based on. Um, the the strength of your conviction around what they're doing, rather than it just being a um, how much how many basis points is it going to cost? Is it also possible that there are less suppliers of ETF funds as opposed to managed funds? Is it possible that the landscape is just a lot wider for managed funds than ETFs? Uh, so that is true. There, there are less. Uh, there are many, many fund managers out there, um, and they will have particular investment uh, out looks and they will be investing in their particular approach. Um, you know, so you're talking about thousands of different fund managers, some of them quite boutique in terms of what they're doing and what they're focused on. Um, whereas when you talk about ETFs, ETFs is a scale game. ETF is about how can I deliver at volume? So you've got a smaller number of players in that market and you, you're really talking about you know half a dozen to a dozen key players that uh, producing ETFs, um, uh, there, there may be some niche players as well, but really majority of it is coming from a, a few small, well-established scale players. ETFs only work really at scale. When you when you look at it, when it is a, effectively a commodity market, you need scale. So that's our June uh, 2018 benchmark report. The next one's uh, due out in September. We do it each quarter. Um, We haven't picked the topic for that yet, so stay tuned. Welcome back. So fund assets and accumulation increased by $200 from March 2017 to June 2018. That is a significant change. 
In the next episode, episode 77, Stuart Smith of Webis will talk about government grants and focus on the three largest federal grants being the R&D Tax Incentive, the Export Market Development Grant and the Entrepreneur's Infrastructure Program. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Thank you.